Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another wintry week from Wisconsin, or should I say maybe our first <laughs> really wintry week uh, this year. We have our full panel. Well, sort of not. Rebecca Lynch is still gone, but, you know, we're starting to get used to her being gone. She is still off with the Warren campaign, but we are fortunate to have Claire Zalke with us, and Claire is our healthcare director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to have you back. Thank you. And Robert Craig, the executive director here at Citizen Action, as always is with us. Robert, good to see you. Good day, everyone. All right. So we have a bunch of topics, uh, just a slightly historic week. Um, Not a lot going on. <laughs> there's, there is so much going on that we're going to have to uh, move very quickly. But so we are going to talk about impeachment. Right. Obviously, this was a historic week. The Senate um, went where we thought it would, uh, voted against um, throwing the president out of office, and only uh, Mitt Romney um, moved over. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I know uh, we have thoughts on that. Uh, we're going to talk about the State of Union a little bit. We are going to talk about Iowa and debrief a bit. We also want to talk about some Medicaid block grant news that came out last week, um, but is still very important and relevant. number of other topics will also be joined by State Representative Jonathan Brostoff to talk about legislation he introduced last week around public education and um, phasing out vouchers. So let us jump in. Um, I want to start with State of the, uh, uh, excuse me, impeachment, right? Because that is sort of, um, it's, it's historic. We're done. Um, it has ended. I don't think it has ended in terms of its impact and more revelations. But um, we record Thursday and Wednesday. The Senate voted. And so this this uh, impeachment has uh, come to a close. Want to get your thoughts, particularly as it relates to um, going forward, right? How is this going to impact the 2020 election? Because that is the most immediate impact, right? He's He's going to be here. Um, so I want to get your thoughts. And obviously, if you have any other comments, uh, you know, to summarize impeachment, feel free to add that. But Robert, I don't know if you want to get us started. Well, first of all, I think we have to recognize what Mitt Romney did. He became the first uh, person, uh, to, a senator, to ever vote for the impeachment of a president of his own party, believe it or not. Nixon, it never went to the Senate, as people remember. So it's the other two, Johnson and Clinton. And gave an extremely passionate speech, is already being ostracized by the Trump gang, and uh, talked about his religious conviction and taking very seriously his oath to do impartial justice and making an oath to God, as in the, the oath they all had to take. And uh, it was, I guess, the little silver lining here of there's still some courage, some notion of the old idea of public service that is still alive to some degree. And I mean... Chris Murphy, the senator from uh, Democrats there in Connecticut, who was in the room, actually, it didn't look like they're on TV. Only four senators listen, were there listening to it. Uh, Murphy was uh, almost in tears talking about how much it moved him that uh, that Romney would do that. And, of course, on cue, then uh, Donald Trump Jr. called for him to be uh, thrown out of the entire party, etc. And so it all, both revealed how ugly Trumpism is and that it's possible to act differently. And it kind of showed up all of his colleagues. So his political future is much in doubt, but his, his place in the history books is not. And I, I like what Senator Murphy said about how he just prays that he would do the same thing, that he hasn't been asked to do that of a president of his own party that he mostly agrees with on policy. And so I think that's huge. As far as impact, 
I think the pundits are all overheated, going crazy about how, gee, Trump's approval rings are up. This is a disaster. This is terrible. This is light years in terms of attention span away from the November election. And I do believe you can you guys can say that I'm um, someone who's just has too happy or sunny a disposition that standing up on principle, which a number of Democrat senators did, Joe Manchin, Doug Jones in Alabama, just for example, right, uh, that those Christian cinema in Arizona to a little lesser extent, that standing up on principle will bode well for the party that, in fact, this is what's misunderstood by most uh, pundits and opinion pollers quite often, that people actually are willing to respect people they disagree with if they think they're standing up on principle. Claire. I think that last point uh, articulates really well why you have a lot of Democrats who disagree on policy points with people like Mitt Romney and John McCain, but are able to respect them as statesmen um, because they they feel like they're um, you know voting their their conscience in, in it, and that it's a defense for a defensible reason, right? That it's in defense of the Constitution or something like that, right? Um, as far as how this is going to affect the 2020 elections, um, I, I hope that the sort of sense of declaring victory that I am feeling and seeing from my um, much, much more conservative family members, uh, cousins and whatnot on Facebook um, dies down a little bit by the time the elections roll around, um, because right now it feels like a lot of victory laps being taken. Um, but uh Ultimately, I think that, you know, this election is going to be just still going to be decided the way that it would have been with or without the elect uh, with with without the impeachment. Right. It's going to be, you know, who has which party has a compelling message that reaches people in the middle who are persuadable um, in this election and persuades people to come out who maybe wouldn't otherwise have have come out to vote. Um, and, and I think that's going to remain the case. Um I uh, yeah, I, I just want to say I just agree with everything that you um, said about Mitt Romney. You look like you're going to say something. Yeah, one more sentence that is health care much more influential with how voters decide than this issue, even in the, the most uh, dire polling. Well, yep. yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to get at. Right. Like, I think all of the issues that that folks were going to vote on are still going to be the issues that f that folks vote on. This was wonderful because that's where I wanted to go, because I think it's a good transition other than I just want to underscore that I do agree. I actually think, hey, man, this all, it's now all on the record, right? And people got to vote, and the, the, the information, the testimony, it's all there for history, right? And I do believe people will be judged, right, like defending Trumpism, you know, at the end of the day. And, and so this process did put people on the record on that. And, and it so hence Robert, you know, Mitt Romney, right, like, the only one who stands out as being something different or unique. So um, I agree, though, this is ultimately going to have very little impact uh, because most people knew where this was headed anyway. So it was almost like a play that was going to play out. Um, but, you know, facts did get out and the public did learn a lot more. I do believe the public now does understand and mostly believes Trump did do this. It's just a question. Some people don't care. Yeah, I want to harken back to there was a poll uh -oh. that um, we uh, looked at, I don't know, however many weeks ago that that showed the difference between um, if people thought that Trump did anything wrong, um, folks who listened to 
the actual impeachment um, testimony uh, when it back when it was I think even in committee yep. um, versus people who didn't. And across both parties, it showed that people who paid attention and listened to the testimony um, were were heads and shoulders more likely to believe that Trump did something wrong. So I think you're right. I think there is a chance that there is a small group of people who became sort of more educated and, and are paying attention more closely than they otherwise would have if it weren't for the impeachment. Now, if that effect sticks around over the course of the next six months, I don't know. But but my hope is maybe, fingers crossed. So I want to transition to State of the Union because obviously all of this sort of is happening in this brew and we'll get after the break to the Iowa caucuses. But because um, the, the State of the Union was important because, first of all, Trump, <laughs> he talked about health care and he basically... I mean, lied, right? He basically went out there and lied about health care. And the fact is, this issue is ripe, piping hot right now. It has not gone away. It was the top, by far top issue in the Iowa caucus exit polls. We know it's hot not only with Democrats, but Rep- Republicans and independents. And so Trump talked about it. And um, Claire, I know uh, you were part of a, a watch party uh, that included our healthcare for all co-op and uh, really responding to Trump on healthcare and just sort of the you know the garbage, uh, in in and essentially the, the fact that he he's done on healthcare in many ways right uh, he he tried to his die is cast the public understands what he was about Claire your thoughts though on State of the Union as it relates to healthcare and. Uh, my my headline for Trump's state of the comments on healthcare in the State of the Union um, are that they are at at the very best um, lies most of them and at the very worst um, sort of gaslighting us right um, and. Um, <laughs> That's yeah, our president. Right. Um, and, and I'll just go through a few of the things that he said um, that are at the top of my mind because there were s- just so very many of them. Um, so he said that he is that he pledged to families that he will always protect people with pre-existing conditions. First, <clears throat> wrong, right? And we know that's wrong because he never put forth a plan to replace the Affordable Care Act um, that included any sort of substantive protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And his own administration is... Um, that failing to defend pre-existing protections for um, that are, exist in the Affordable Care Act in federal courts right now. More than that, William Barr is asking his attorney general for it to all be thrown out. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, and so that is just just a, the most straight-up lie I have ever heard in my entire life. Um, he, he also said, and I quote, send me a bill lowering the cost of prescription drugs and I will sign it. <clears throat> In which case I was jumping out of my seat watching this and I was so happy that it panned to a group of um, Democratic female legislators, <laughs> uh, members of Congress and the audience who were also on their feet shouting at the president going, HR3, HR3. Because yeah, exactly. I was in my chair going, HR3, yeah. HR3. Which as listeners of the podcast know is the Elijah Cummings bill to lower um, prescription drug prices. And I have more to say, but I know we have to take a break. Yeah, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about the State of the Union. Um, we already talked about impeachment, but the State of the Union certainly happening within that. And uh, Claire has a few more things 
and then we'll get to Robert about uh, particularly health care in the State of the Union, uh, which is going to be the top issue in the election. Yeah, so to pick up with pre, uh, to pick back up with prescription drug reform, um, he says, "Send me a bill and I'll sign it. Any bill, except we know that the House of Representatives passed a comprehensive prescription drug reform bill that would include the government being able to negotiate um, the price of prescription drugs with big pharma, um, but that the Senate Republicans failed to take it up, and Trump has openly not supported it. And so to say, send me a bill and I'll sign it, is really disingenuous, um, and we need to be able to hold him accountable to that." Um, he also made a pledge that he was going to end HIV AIDS in this country, um, but he made that same pledge last year and did nothing. So how could we possibly believe him when he says it this year? He had an entire year to do something and he hasn't. And the government holds some patents for um, drugs like PrEP that can help treat and prevent this disease. And, and yet he's doing absolutely nothing except getting into like a little bit of a squabble with um, a, a drug company. So, first of all, I want to thank all of the members who came out to the the healthcare uh, uh, State of the Union watch party. That's awesome, uh, Robert. Your thoughts? Well, Claire's hit it, hit two of the big ones: pre-existing conditions and prescription drugs. By the way, he opened that section saying that he was taking on the big pharmaceutical companies. Eh. Uh, which he, of course, is on reality TV on the stage in no other way whatsoever. Uh, he also said that he has introduced health plans that are 60% cheaper and are better. Eh. So the better, these are junk insurance plans, folks, that don't cover basic stuff and which leave you in terrible trouble if you ever have to use them. And furthermore, uh, quite frankly, uh, are creaming off healthier people out of the insurance market so that it raises the price for everything else. But So in what respect they're better, only on Trump reality TV, <laughs> he said that people love their private insurance. And then it was no. just dead silent in the audience. Like, right. it clearly was supposed to be an applause line, and everybody was like, well... well actually, this, I just spent three hours on with my health insurance provider trying to get that $2,000 And this, And this is my cautionary note, because the end of the healthcare section was the attack on Medicare for all and socialism and all the horrors of it, as opposed to Trumpian capitalism. And then uh, the coup de grace that it gives free health care to illegal aliens. Ooh, yes. And that was the transition into the shameful immigration yep. section of his speech. Yep. Here's the thing, folks. That's a real high-testing negative, and... Obviously, we believe as progressives that everyone has health care is even right, regardless of their documentation or status in the country. And that's true in Canada. If you go get injured in Canada, they take care of you. They don't say, ooh, uh, let me check your status out. But here's the problem. It tests very well. In fact, when we and a lot of others enacted Healthy Wisconsin, an actual single-payer plan that went through the state Senate in 2007 in Wisconsin and held up the whole budget for four months, the business lobby, WMC, put out ad after ad then and for years after against all Senate Democrats that voted for it that they were for free health care for illegal aliens. And my advice, we'll talk more about it going forward because that's clearly going to be the talking point, is we need to attack it and pivot off because we, if we discuss immigration as a less popular issue for us than health care. So we need to pivot back to the question of, so you think denying health care to other people, you're willing to deny yourself health care and make it much more expensive yourself just so you can feel the satisfaction of denying it to someone else, because that's what he's saying. 
So, yep, Claire. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say about the State of the Union, and it's not about healthcare, but I feel like we would be um, sort of morally remiss to not um, call out the exceptionally um, racist and harmful fear mongering that um, that Trump did uh, when he talked about. Uh, immigration in uh, the State of the Union, um, uh, sharing just um, absolutely um, sort of horrendous uh, stories that that paint um, all all people who are immigrants um, uh, in, in this in this terrible light, um, and uh, that sole purpose exists to inflame the fears of white supremacists and rile up his base at the expense of an entire population of people who are doing nothing more than um, trying to make a better life for themselves and their families. Um, and, and it was just the mo one of the most disgusting things I have um, ever heard the president do, and that's a pretty high bar. Um, and it, it was it was just absolute it was absolutely horrible. There, there just are not words. Yes, I agree. And Ruth Conniff's article in the Wisconsin Examiner is a good one to read to dig dig into Claire's point. Uh, yet he he did the whole giving awards to people uh, shtick. I think Bill Clinton might have started that, but now even governors do it in in states. Uh, but it was they, these were horrendous. One was to give a private school scholarship to someone who, from a failing government school, i.e. a public school, that was gross. But even more gross, and I want to make sure I explain myself on this, was the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. Now, I don't agree with people who are in any way uh, expressing public pleasure that the man has four-stage cancer. Because I, I think we need to show him the humanity he doesn't show others in order to vindicate human values and empathy. But with a man who and I'm, uh, had Barack the Magic fill-in-the-blank song and uh, you know literally suggested that 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 a college student, a law student who was getting uh, getting her uh, her her uh, women's health from from government program was somehow now a slut and prostitute. Uh, it goes on and on, and so that was disgusting and gross. As was the uh, forced uh, reunion of the uh, Af Af Afghan soldier with his mother in fr in front of a national audience that that she was unprepared for. It was just a gross display overall. So we're going to transition instead of talking about Iowa. I want to use the rest of the segment to actually talk about one other thing Trump is doing, and that is around Medicaid block grants. Um, Claire, uh, please let our listeners know why going to a Medicaid block grant would be so terrible. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because it is such a complicated um, and nuanced policy uh, issue that if you didn't take a moment to really study and understand it, you wouldn't understand how damaging it could be. Um, and for something that is so um, complicated and nuanced, it, it would have just incredibly widespread damaging uh, results. Uh, so basically, this guidance, basic, it's a guidance um, from the Trump administration, allows states to submit a, a particular um, Medicaid waiver um, that would um, allow states that um, uh, to receive uh, first capped funding. So um, this means that um, 
there are two different forms that capped funding could take. It would, it would be um, like a limited amount of Medicaid spending, right? So you could do it one as a block grant, um, which is the most common thing that we're talking about, where um, the state would receive just a lump sum of money to administer their uh, Medicaid program, or two, a per capita cap, where um, spending is capped on a on a per enrollee basis. Like you can spend no more than X amount of dollars on per person in your um, state's Medicaid program. Now, if states were to receive that first um, block grant type of funding for their Medicaid programs, um, they would be required to spend at least 80% of it on healthcare services, so like not administrative costs. But if they spend over the capped funding amount, then the state is fully on the hook to cover all of the remaining cost. And this is the issue because it creates an incentive for states to cut benefits or to cut the eligibility requirements in order to stay under the capped amount. And so that's that's the sort of the, the single greatest issue. And then doubling down on that, the guidance also gives new authorities to states to cut eligibility and benefits. So it gives them an incentive to kick people off to reduce the quality of benefits and then makes it legally easier for them to it's do that. It's like giving the killer the knife, right? Oh, here. By the way, here, here's how you cut yeah. the person. And something that nobody's talking about, it also creates um, sort of a closed drug formulary. So, um, so states that do this, rather than being required to cover every drug made by a manufacturer for folks that participate um, or uh, that participates in the federal Medicaid uh, rebate program, states would only be required to cover um, sort of cer a certain number, and I won't go through the whole thing because it's yeah, super sure. complicated, but um, a certain number of like one or two drugs in every sort of category um, or in a package. So it significantly would also reduce the number of prescription medications that folks who participate in these uh, Medicaid programs are allowed to take if a state in it chooses to, to use this new authority. Well, I... I think the listeners may not know that uh, Claire is a credentialed policy expert and <laughs> holding a graduate degree at La Follette School of Public Policy. Yes. Uh, so I will just add from a messaging standpoint, folks, progressives want to understand all the things that Claire just outlined. All we have to say to others, except for those who really like facts, like our activist progressive uh, <laughs> friends, is that this is simply a scheme to cut people off health care or to give them substandard coverage, period. And it's all it, it it's all it's it's all a lie. Other than that, that's all it is, and it's just a fancy way of packaging that as some kind of reform. I want to remind folks: Medicaid is super important. It's sort of the it's the basis was which the Affordable Care Act was built off of. So if you start basically uh, whittling away and chipping away at the base in the Medicaid program. You know, you're effectively going at the whole system. Claire, final yeah. thoughts? Yeah, my final thought is it, it is impossible to overstate how much of a significant and drastic departure this is from the way Medicaid is and always has been administered. I mean, this is a foundational shift that we should be concerned about. So, folks, please let uh, Senator Baldwin and Senator Ron Johnson know, particularly Senator Ron Johnson, that this is uh, awful. All right, with that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin, where Citizen Action, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So we have got to talk about Iowa. Oh, Iowa, Iowa. I don't know. Did Iowa, did, uh, they don't deserve this. I'll just say this. <laughs> I don't think Iowa in of itself as a state asked for this, but holy smokes. It's about as bad. Uh, it's as bad as it could go in terms of like, it's a caucus. It's not even a ton of people, <laughs> like all of that. But I just want to start by saying, 
as we record Thursday morning in Iowa, uh, 97% of the votes are now counted. And I do want to start by saying there is no, uh, and we have talked to our, our, our counterparts in Iowa who are knee-deep in the caucus project. Um, there is no evidence that there's any sort of fraud going on or that we're not going to get an accurate count. I just want to lay that out there. That is my understanding. Um, but it was obviously just crazy. Um, but at, with 97% in, uh, we basically have a tie. Um, Pete Buttigieg is got a ver- uh, one-tenth of a percent uh, lead, <laughs> 26.2 to 26.1. I want to make sure I got that right. Yeah, 22, 26.2 to 26.1%, and they're both going to walk away with 11 delegates. But the really big story out of Iowa, and I, this is where I want to go, Joe Biden. Joe Biden took on tremendous water. He's yeah. walking out of Iowa with 12, uh, 12%. What was it? No, I'm sorry, 15 15%, right? Though, and this is somebody who's been in the high 20s and 30%. Just to give you a quick update on the factual part, uh, that is the New York Times 18 minutes ago, gave it, they estimate that there's a 53% likelihood that Sanders indeed won, Yeah, <laughs> just so everyone knows. So by the time you listen to this, uh, they may be at 100%, but essentially we have a tie, right? Um, and, um, the, and we have Biden essentially... I'm not going to say done, but tanking, like, tanking very badly, right? Like nobody expected this. Maybe a couple days before. Last I, week. Hold on, hold on, yes. hold on. <laughs> I I'm not saying in the last week or so, yeah. but like months and months ago. I mean, this guy nobody would have thought, right? Fifteen percent be like he's done, right? He's done. Um, so is Joe Biden done, Claire? That's my best. Um, that's my best. What's his name? Uh, the old guy from. <laughs> That show, Jack Mc, <laughs> Jack, Jack German, uh, Claire, is he done? Is Joe Biden done? Um, functionally, I think probably. Um, we can talk. I have a lot of feelings about the way that Iowa, um, the place that Iowa holds in the Democratic primary process and the way that they hold their election. Um, And part of that is that Iowa has sort of an outsized share of um, sort of power that people's votes. Iowa matter more than than folks in other states. Um, And and I think this is an example of it. Um, Iowa is important because of momentum for a lot, not every candidate, but a lot of candidates. And um, I, that can mean either building momentum or it can mean killing it. And in the case of Joe Biden, I feel like it could mean that it is going to kill a fair amount of his momentum. I think he's often um, very frequently unflappable. And I think this is something that has um, flapped. I don't know what the wrong word is. That that has shaken him a bit. Um, And we've seen some of his comments since have been a, a little... Um, sort of angrier and tenser than than sort of a tone that he usually takes. Uh, so I feel like he was shaken by this. And this has got to crush fundraising. Robert, Joe Biden, is he dead? Well, he's all, already almost out of money. He's <laughs> yeah. not been fundraising very well. Uh, so, you know, if it's college basketball, he's down 20 points in the second half, but it does happen, right? Only 20. Okay. Well, here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> it looks It looks grim in New Hampshire. But what hasn't happened yet is the dislodging of African-American, older-trending, habitual voters in the South for Super Tuesday. They've not moved, and it's unclear whether they'll move to Mayor Pete or where they would move, right? Yeah, that's a good point. And so there's some doubt about uh, what happens here. And 
you have to think about this. Who holds? We don't think about this enough. We keep thinking about some proverbial swing voter in a suburb. This is a different kind of swing. You're, I'm giving you a stereotype, a 65-year-old African-American woman in Charleston, South Carolina, who is a habitual voter and is a stalwart in her church and has been loyal to mainline Democrats because she lived through the civil rights movement and actually has knows a lot about Jim Crow and thinks that they, they've been better protected through that alliance and therefore is not necessarily looking for idea, you know, brand new, exciting ideas, is looking for safety and stability, but also does want improvements in their community. So I think, I don't think we have a good analysis now that they're being, they're, there's a potential detachment from the Clinton-Obama wing of the party, what happens with those voters? And we won't really know until South Carolina takes place. And so that's the only doubt, but uh, obviously Biden is in deep, deep trouble. Yeah, so the, the part of your um, premise that I'll accept is that um, is that you know usually um, historically in the Democratic Party, folks that do really well in Iowa continue to do well um, for for the rest of the campaign. Um, the exception being, I think Clinton didn't. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, I think in '92 didn't win Iowa, and obviously he was won the, the comeback kid, wasn't he in New, yeah. New Hampshire? Yeah, you're right. So, so win New Hampshire either. <laughs> no, he was yeah. Right. So right. So my but, so my point is is that I think uh, you know I, I would not be surprised if people Buttigieg just thinking you know like hey historically if you win Iowa then you are going to do really well and continue on da, 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 da. I think he might be another exception to the rule I think they put a lot of emphasis on yes. Iowa and and not a lot of emphasis in other places and I think we're seeing that play out in in thing in places um, like South Carolina that that Robert mentioned uh, I, I think he's does not have the stronghold in other parts of the country um, that he does in Iowa and so it is entirely possible that the um, that the sort of the moderate faction is is still up for for grabs in and this race. Bloomberg is trying to step in. So don't just well, think about Mayor Pete. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's going to be Biden. Like I think it could yeah. be literally any of them still. That's the other dynamic, right? The Bloomberg spending, and I'm just going to say is obscene, and it's a perversion of democracy, and it's all of the horrible things that um, we ought not support, um, you know? And I, I got I have friends and other people, a lot of people are working for Bloomberg, so I got nothing against them. But we gotta we gotta make sure that hopefully Bloomberg gets zero oxygen. Um, I'll just say this: uh, I think you're right, Pete. Really uh, organized well in Iowa and was prepared to take on the Biden, um, some of the hemorrhaging of Biden, but also Klobuchar got some life. And I mentioned it. She took advantage of the uh, the dead air and jumped on stage and made a, a compelling speech for the center, right? And, and for her experience. Um, and that experience should matter. It was actually a really compelling argument against Bloomberg. I'm going to give Klobuchar some credit. She was like, you know, you could just see, you know, this idea that all this experience, and even if she has similar positions to Bloomberg, that he could come in and just buy an election, right? And that all of her hard work and experience, even though I disagree with her fundamentally a lot on some policy, um, means nothing, right? It means nothing as a leader. So anyways, I just she wanted to say that- problem I, you know, has. She has no discernible proof yet that any people of color support her, and this is a exactly. very, very, very diverse party. I wasn't talking about Klobuchar as that. I was talking yeah. more about Bloomberg and, and actually speaking out effectively, I think, maybe Making a case to, let's say, moderates or people who aren't with us on the Bernie Warren about not going for that, right? And like, Jesus, we lose our soul. Anyways, um, <laughs> the other the other thing that is worth pointing out is how well if you combine the Warren and the and the Sanders uh, uh, totals, right? And just still how strong 
the progressive flank of the party is right now and not to lose sight of that. And I think that it, that remains also about issues and ideas, okay? Healthcare, top issue coming out. Climate, second issue. Do not go away from being bold in our vision. This is what is changing the way people are perceiving, and it's those issues that are going to help us win, right? Not like some, well, handicapped or perfectly manicured or centered candidate. It's about these these ideas are captivating people. Claire, last last thoughts on Iowa? My last thoughts are my uh, own personal soapbox about um, the the Iowa caucuses. And I feel like a traitor for saying this because one of my best friends from Iowa and has warm, fuzzy feelings about the Iowa caucuses. But in general, um, I I think that as a Democratic Party, we should no longer allow um, a state like Iowa to be first um, because we are supposed to be the party of diversity and inclusion. And we we start this entire process in in a state that is is not particularly diverse. And and also I'm and, and a state that runs its um, primary elections as caucuses, which are really exclusionary. I'm pretty sure they don't have an early voting um, process. Um, You have to go and spend a lot of time there, which is hard for if you have to have childcare, if you're a caregiver for a parent, if you work second shift. Um, I think it is not a great way to run democracy, and and it's not something that I think that we should have as as sort of our first election. And uh, shout out to Governor Evers, who actually called it voter suppression, which was like, Oh, Governor yeah. Evers, how about that? Robert, uh, before we go to break, something on Robin Voss this week that we wanted to at least get out that he said on Upfront this week about redistricting? On the TV show. On he, the TV. He said, first of all, he was all dispassionate and, and, and acting like he was the part nonpartisan guy and Evers is being partisan <laughs> on the issue, like it, which means reading he's worried about the issue and what Evers is doing. And then number two, that... We'll go through the regular process, and Evers will veto it, and then it'll go to court, and it's just fine. And so, in other words, he disowned the idea they would try to go around the governor altogether. And the question for everyone is, is he serious, and will he reverse on a dime, or is he now locked in in some way that he was so emphatic about this on on the probably the best-rated Sunday morning in-state talk show in the state? Well, we're going to... We're going to continue to watch this. We've talked about this issue the way it has just really come into the public eye as opposed to being just sort of esoteric. Um, so, anyways, but we got to take a break, and when we get back, we're going to be joined by Representative Jonathan Brostoff to talk about public education. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Uh, we're really uh, happy to have back... Uh, a guest we have had on a number of times. We normally have State Representative Jonathan Brostoff on to talk about Foxconn because, you know, just flat out leading, uh, one of the leading critics on it and from the very beginning and has just been very clear about that. Uh, but Jonathan, we have you on. And first of all, thank you for coming. My we pleasure. really appreciate it. Um, to talk about a bill that you, uh, you're behind, along with Jody Emerson, one mm-hmm. of our members uh, from Eau Claire, uh, and it came out last week, and it's around uh, phasing out and dealing with uh, privatization of our public schools. Tell us more about the bill. Sure, that's absolutely. Well, first off, thanks for having me, and always happy to be back. But that's part of it. There's Pardon. kind of a couple components to it. And um, basically what it does is it ends the failed privatization experiment and expands the successful uh, education investment experiment that Milwaukee schools tried, which is known as SAGE. Yes. Um, and that's the other component about it that I think is important to mention. So we've had this experiment for years um, that 
basically is about trying to turn education to a profit-making machine, and this has been backed by people like the Bradley Foundation, the Koch brothers, Betsy DeVos, etc. And again, these are not people who have the best interest of democracy or of public education or of you know people in need in mind. These are people who want to squeeze you know even more money out of society and get you know uh, uh, increased. Uh, kind of wage gaps and wealth disparities um, more so than any sort of good public interest. So they're the ones behind this. They're the ones pulling the puppet strings, and they're the ones who have been kind of at this for years funding it. Um, it hasn't worked. On average, uh, the public school students are still overall outperforming their private school counterparts despite the fact that they have to take all students, including those who might need a little bit of extra attention, things like you know, certain um, quote-unquote special yep. needs and stuff like that, uh, students or uh, people who might have other um, behavioral situations where uh, these voucher schools are not going to allow them to participate anymore after they take their money. The other side of this bill is, again, to expand the successful experiment. And basically what that does is um, reduce classroom size so there's no more than 18 students to one teacher. Um, and that ratio has been proven to be incredibly successful, but especially when it comes to the racial dynamics as far as black and white students, it disproportionately benefits black students, um, which is something we need to be thinking about as a state and as a city. Um, it also uh, says that there has to be data-driven instructional coaching for classroom teachers, um, and it provides uh, data-informed one-to-one tutoring services for some students that might be struggling with reading or math um, specifically. So uh, again, this was a wildly successful program when implemented, and the Republicans discontinued it, whereas the experiment that failed, they expanded despite what best practices said. Um, my bill basically reverses that. It says we're going to get privatization out, focus on reinvesting in public education, make sure everyone gets access to what they deserve. And I got to say, Sage, I hadn't heard that name in years. Mm -hmm. And it used to be, everyone knew what Sage yep. was. And it was tested. Everyone knew it. if there was one thing you wanted to do to improve academic performance, smaller class sizes, right? Yep. It sounds so simple, but you know what? It costs money. Claire, I know you have some thoughts. I have so many thoughts. Um, so I was on the school board in Milwaukee when um, the Republicans and legislature pulled the funding for stage, and it was yep. it was heartbreaking, and it was it was a devastating thing for our district to have to figure out how to move forward without that money. Yeah. Um, so I want to say, um, so certainly I, I support this legislation, both pieces of it. Um, I'm super grateful that that somebody is taking this principled stance in the legislature on behalf of our kids. Um, it's really important. I also want to go on another mini personal soapbox, which is that a lot of people don't understand how education funding in Wisconsin works. The reason why um, the state legislature is able to pull money um, for this program like SAGE is because um, most states will have a base amount of funding that, they, that you give, um, ev that every student is allow allotted, and then it's increased per student based on like special needs. Like if you're low income, if you're a student of color, um, if you have um, uh, a learning disability, um, in Wisconsin, most of these services are offered through grants. So, like, the district gets a grant to do stage. The district gets a grant to support low ex uh, and they call it categorical funding. Yep. Um, and 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 so when they decide that they just don't want to give that money anymore, the service goes away, and districts just have to deal with it. And it is incredibly ridiculous that this is how we are the only state in the in the country that functions this way. Um, so Wisconsin doesn't have an allotted amount per student. The state actually has a number that they say 
they a number that corresponds to the property value that they think each city should be able to support behind students, and then the state provides funding to sort of equalize the tax burden. So Wisconsin does not have an educational funding system. We have a property tax alleviation system masquerading as an educational funding system, and it's messed up, and I'm so glad that we have allies like Representative Brostov who are trying to do what we can within this current system. Yeah, and it's really weird when you think about the fact that Texas has a more equitable funding system than Wisconsin does. And, you know, it's true. The, the idea of basing it off property taxes or kind of second, you know, degree basing it off property taxes is totally ludicrous. And, you know, we, we also recently had Mike Pence come to town to campaign in Wisconsin, a battleground state, uh, for this with Betsy DeVos. And it was just so sickening how they've kind of, you know, uh, the, the, how they've taken this important issue of education, turned it into a profit-making machine, and now they have all these lobbyists, you know, Scott Jensen, all this money behind it, and at the end of the day, who's getting hurt and whose society is that worse for? And by the way, we tried that before. There was a long time in this country's history when we only had private education, when there wasn't such a thing as a public school, and it sucked, and we evolved past that. And now we've decided that public education is something we want everyone to have access to. And in fact, Wisconsin used to be one of the leaders in this. But, um, but I think it's important that we shift the paradigm uh, for two reasons. One is that some will say, well, this is aspirational. Well, it's possible with new maps we might have a different dynamic. And if we ever find ourselves in a situation to actually uh, kind of move forward on progressive policy, I don't want to be left in the, in the dark like what happened last time when we had majorities in both houses and the governor's office. We didn't increase minimum wage. We didn't get nonpartisan districts, et cetera, et cetera. I want to be ahead of the curve and ready to roll when that comes as well. And I want to shift the conversation. I'm not willing to just play defense yes, all the time. Yes. Well, bravo on that. I mean, we talk about this all the time, right? Like, we have to have a vision. The Green New Deal, right? Nobody thought that. That wasn't passing in, the, in Congress, but it laid out a vision of the kind of world we want, and it's inspiring people. And what do you know? Now, climate change is one of the top issues, Robert. Well, I want to praise you for actually proposing something bold. You can't be prepared to actually pass bold things if you don't talk about them before you have power. And you exactly. actually probably can't get power without them, in my opinion, because you need something to excite people and a reason to come out and vote, especially people who aren't voters right now, because they don't see a stake. Exactly. And why would they see a stake um, when the minority party offers nothing exciting in key issue areas, exactly. i.e. health care, climate, etc. I mean, I appreciate what Mandela Barnes is doing in climate, but we could have some bold, bolder climate bills out there, too. Uh, we have some. I, I like what uh, Greta's doing, but it, yeah. it, it's more limited than what you're proposing. I think you go, go even bolder. <laughs> and so I praise you for that. Um, I want to give you the opportunity here to uh, respond to some of your critics. And <laughs> I see Jim Bender, the school choice uh, of Wisconsin. He's still around. Called, uh, called Brostow's proposal a non-serious proposal from somebody who can't cite local facts. Oh. So what local facts is Mr. <laughs> Bender talking about that you're not citing, Representative? So one of the kind of most insidious parts of this whole thing uh, is that you have all these pay-for-play studies that are coming out with groups like Will that are putting forward completely erroneous and, and easy to disprove information, 
but it's all incestuous. They all, they're all paid from the same people. They all cite the same stuff. They're all quoting each other. And then when you challenge that, they say, oh, well, you're not one to do lo- that ain't local. Who's paying for that? The Koch brothers aren't local. They're not from Wisconsin. They ain't lo- Despite how much money they spend here, they ain't local. And Jim Bender, I'm surprised someone with that kind of salary who's willing to sell his soul like that is willing to, you know. What kind of salary? <laughs> exactly. Okay. You know, you know, I'm surprised someone who's making that kind of money is even thinking about me because that guy's on a whole different, a whole <laughs> different pay range. And I think that at the end of the day, you look at the people who are really pushing this the hardest, who you know have the most to lose, and it's people who are getting paid the most off. And it's again, education is not about privatization. It's not about money making. It's about making our society better. And that's what this bill does. And that's what the enemies of public education want to fight against. And unfortunately, they have a lot of money. And I see the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel did uh, not uh, that Robin Voss did not return their phone call, but. Uh, one of the key things in this would be all the Democrats signing on. Have they all signed on yet, Jonathan? Not yet, but I would love to have all their support if you want to call your local reps. And I've gotten a little bit of feedback from folks who have said, well, this is going too far. Vouchers are here to stay. We just have to hold them to the same accountability. I was here when vouchers started. I'm from Milwaukee my whole life, and I remember it very clearly. I remember Ife mm-hmm. Latunji and me having it in our debate class for that year when they decided the Supreme Court ruling about religious funding being used from public dollars. And... It, it was an experiment, and experiments can start and they can end. It's not, Nothing is set in stone. We can overcome this. It just takes the will of the people to overcome bought and paid for politicians. Yeah, I also wanted to go back to something you said, which was that this is uh, this is also about important messaging. Um, and I want to point out that we are seeing a super strong pro-school choice messaging out there right now. We saw it, and we already talked about today in, tr- in Trump's State of the Union, where he highlighted it. And so we need to have champions um, like like Jonathan here and our members speaking out in, in the counter-narrative. We cannot allow that message to run unchecked. So even if it is aspirational, even if we're putting the vision out into the world, it's super important. Because we cannot, we cannot let that gaslighting rhetoric continue. Yep, and it, and it was great that that was uh, someone from Eau Claire area and Milwaukee area, and showing that this issue really impacts the whole state. But yeah. with that, Jonathan, we have point. got to say goodbye. Uh, this uh, podcast, the show, has come to an end. But we want to thank you for coming on, and of course for leading on this bill and other things. And look forward to your leadership in the future. But with that, we got to wrap up this battleground, Wisconsin. We want to thank Brad. And we'll see you next week.